the roadways of world building because you're always on them and you're never really going to get off them. The destination is when you are done with the project. And even then you might get back on the road when you want to go to a different project with it. So it is the idea that it is continuous and you're always going to be checking and making sure that you're within bounds. And if something has to change, learning how to change it and get go about changing it. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real made-up things. I'm your host, Dino, and today you'll be joining me in a discussion on what is worldbuilding. Can we separate it from the medium in which it is used in for critique? And if so, how? How does the medium in which you worldbuild affect the finished product? And how can you make informed choices while worldbuilding? Today, joining me are BK, Hex, and Immokinate. If you'd be so kind to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm BK Bass. I'm an author of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, a writer here at World Building Magazine, and also a publisher with Kinet Publishing. Hello, my name is Hex, or BH Pierce. I'm a fantasy author, and I'm a writer for the magazine. And I hold a degree in anthropology, and I'm working on a series of world building guides. Hello, hello. I am Immaculate, also publicly known as Ian Aaron Tividad. I'm the editorial chair here at World Building Magazine. I do freelance work and writing and editing. I'm an uh, avid video gamer, tabletop gamer, and as uh, my presence here may indicate, a world builder. And I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Well, thank you all for joining me today. So to get us started off on a great foot, teach and every one of you, what is world building? I like to think of it as the process of making a setting for any sort of work. Yeah, I'd have to agree on that there. There's can be a lot of different levels of world building from creating like an entire universe to set fictional stories in down to, you know, setting up, you know, anything as small as like a local neighborhood and the people that live in it can be world building for a story. Yeah. I'd call it taking inspiration from the real world and mashing all kinds of different sources together to make something new and unique and fun. And PK to kind of go on to that point, what do you feel like is the difference between the levels in trying to create such a universe or a small town? Is there a difference in quality? Is there a difference in perhaps ambition of the project? Do you feel like it takes as much effort to do one as the other? I wouldn't say uh, quality would be a big difference between them. You know, that comes down to, you know, different factors and the scope of it. You know, the, the scope is really a separate thing from quality. And the amount of effort and work that goes into it can definitely vary on that. Like I've written works that just take place in, you know, a single city and doesn't take much effort. And then on the other hand, I'm building an entire, you know, planet with nations and cultures and religions and histories and all that. And um, I've been working on that for over a year and having to start writing the book, whereas for other projects, I just jump right into the book. For that, I like to think that it just depends on the amount of detail and minute that you really want to go into. For example, I'm... After like maybe a few months of thinking through my world building process for my homebrew world for a for a campaign I'm doing, a D&D campaign, I find myself really getting caught up on building a big city as opposed to expanding on the history of a gigantic continent, which I find somewhat ironic, but simultaneously as I think about it more, it, it kind of makes sense because I really want a lot of details in the city. 
So you think detail can be had at any level. And this kind of fleshes into Hex's interpretation of world building with trying to find sources from our world and other settings and try to mash them into your own. What kind of sources do you guys look for when you world build? I just like to look around. My, my line of work has me in contact with a lot of people. My, my degree, which is in history, has made me look at the world and the past and to an extent kind of using the past to predict the future. So a lot of it is just common knowledge that I bake into my world building. And of course, that spirals into research online in books as something kind of catches my interest I want to integrate. Yeah, the deeper you go, the more complicated your world building gets, because the more topics you do, the more each different thing you put in will bounce off and influence the other. So, like for example, if you're, if you're, say, making a religion for your, for your world, you can just have the basic, you know, this is the god, and this is their, you know, weekly ceremony. But if you decide to go deeper and you figure out, you know, their, you know, creeds, ethics, most duties of the priests, the deeper you go, the more you have to do to make it function. So in the more you show, the more you have to actually research and create. So it becomes a more involved process when you try to make more and come into a more defined detail. It expands into options to create even more after that, which is an approach that you, you do see occasionally, but going into it for every sector would probably take a very long time. And BK, you're you're about to say something. Huh? What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I was going to agree with Hex on that, and uh, you know, you know what you just said. Also, how things can branch out, and you establish one part of a world, and it will open up new questions for you. And you going back to the subject of religions. You know, I've got a project where I create a religion and a, uh, a militant order for the religion. Well, that got into all kinds of politics and stuff because all of a sudden you have this army that's not loyal to the secular government, how does that affect everything? How does that affect the politics? Where do they fit in the society? So there's all kinds of ripple effects like that when you start adding things. You know, everything's connected in the world. Every, you know, you add a certain kind of animal, well, what does it get used for? Is there certain kinds of use for it, like a certain dish, you know, cuisine, something like that? You know, everything kind of rolls into something else. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that that's where it's really handy to have scope down for whatever work you're doing. I think it's easier for writing, for example, to just really, really spiral into this never-ending chain of questions and answering and research, which can take a lot of effort. But not everything is in writing after all. I think a good thing to do to avoid something like that is to know exactly you know, what kind of information you need for your end product. Like for writing a book, you know, it's a more constrained kind of environment than like building for like a, a tabletop RPG where you don't know where your players are going to go, what's going to happen, what they're going to, you know, walk into. You need to have a lot more laid out. So I think, you know, building like something like when Greenwood built the Forgotten Realms, he had to think of everything. But when you're writing world building for a book, you know what you're going to need in the end. So trying to deliver scope through the product. So you, if you have a, as you said, like an RPG setting, it'll be a lot harder than a novel for how much scope you have to deal with, but not so much the detail, correct? You, would you agree with that? Yeah, the, the, the detail can be there. And like, especially in a novel, you actually want a little more detail, I think, because you're gonna have to describe all that. But with the, the scope of an RPG and because 
like I said, the, the unpredictability of it because it is collaborative storytelling, really, that you don't know what's going to happen, what might come up. You kind of have to have everything already pre-laid out. Whereas, like, with a book, like, I know, okay, in the first, um, even if you're writing a big series, like the first book in the series, I'm only going to deal with, you know, maybe this one country. I don't have to build out the whole world in super detail. I want to know the basic broad strokes so I can know how the rest of the world affects that country that I'm working in. But I don't need to know like what the pottery looks like in another country or something like that. I, I absolutely agree with world building as needed is what I like to call it. You've written, since you're an author, BK, I wanted to, I was curious if you've ever kind of world built yourself into a proverbial kind of narrative corner because you either didn't have foresight for something or you had to adjust things because of something you had established before. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, things like that happen all the time. And, you know, because the the story itself is the most important product, you know, when you're writing for a book, the world building sometimes just has to change. So if I get in a situation where there's a conflict where, you know, the story needs to go in direction A, but the the world building doesn't jive with it, then you change the world building to jive with it. Sometimes it's interesting, though, if the world building conflicts with the narrative, it makes you think of a new way to approach the story and working around the world building you've already established might open up some new ideas that you hadn't thought of before. Yeah, that happens all the time with me. Like in, in the first series I wrote, I had like I had a plot point where people of a certain tribe, let's say, go to um I needed as the plot for them to go to talk to this other group of people. But I realized in my world building that I had it that these two groups, you know, did not contact each other much. So rather than change that, I just changed the characters' backstories so they had had a reason to trust them. So it gave me, so I, I kept the uh, original world building thing I had, and then I managed to give them a unique bit of backstory. So it can be helpful. I've always believed that creativity can be enhanced by constraints and Having complete freedom is not always necessarily a good thing. Sometimes having, you know, limits and a framework to work in can really help you think outside the box and get done what you need done without having to change a bunch of work you've done before. So would you agree that structure is one of the key pieces of world building? At least in some respect, you need some structure to essentially create a foundation for your world to stand on. You definitely need to establish rules for it, you know, what are the laws of physics that apply in your world? What are the the, law, the metaphysical laws like magic and things like that? You know, especially with science fiction and fantasy, you know, you're, we're making stuff up so we can kind of do whatever we want to do, but it has to make sense to the audience. So you, once you establish your rules, you got to stick to them. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely come back to consistency as as the hallmark of quality world building later on in this podcast <laughs> consistency is definitely a key piece to it i find where do you think it's okay to be inconsistent though never <laughs> yeah I, I don't think you can like i said once you establish this is how something works you have to stick to it unless you have a really good you know, world-changing events. It's, if it's like a big plot twist or plot point in the story, otherwise you, you better stick to what you already established. Yeah, with the whole narrative meets world-building because lore isn't always story. And I 
just wanted I wanted to make a note about consistency because I hit that button pretty hard. Well, in my opinion, in my reading, consistency in world building is really important. You, it doesn't necessarily need to be done for something to be successful because there's nothing consistent about the world building in Harry Potter and it has a theme park. I was going to say that that kind of goes into the whole, the entertainment value versus necessarily narrative or consistent quality. Yeah, and some rules remain to be broken. I think Harry Potter is a good example where, you know, it, the, the way the world is set up, it's set up to be changed. It's set up to have, you know, things like that. Because there's so, magic is such a big part of it. That's, you know, a good way to get around that. If I can step back to structure for just a little bit, I think... I was kind of taking as two kind of two fronts there because there is the narrative structure like within a world and then there's kind of a meta structure of how someone approaches the world building because not everyone will start with let's say a mass world i for one started my world with a few characters that i thought would be good heroes or villains in a D campaign and then as i kind of um, flourished their backstories and added details suddenly i had an entire continent without even really realizing what i was doing yeah i'll say that's a fair point because every every writer has their own process and they have to take time to learn that what that is and part of my process is before i come up with characters besides very basic archetypes i create the cultures they come from and then i pull aspects from that culture to make them so that's a big part of my process, but it might not apply to other people. So there is definitely some wiggle room there. So do you think that trying to understand your own personal process is perhaps the best way to make, say, an informed decision about what to do next in world building or where to go back to, when to retcon, understanding how to move forward? Is your own process the only real way to know how, what's best for you? Or do you think other people's input also can weigh in on what's best? I think the latter. Because ultimately, it's going to be your process. This is you conducting your efforts, your energy into creating a world according to hopefully what is your vision. What you gain and wean from other people discussing it as we are doing now is going to kind of, it's going to be a source for you. But you're probably not, or not probably, but some people may end up tweaking that so as to fit how they personally like to approach things. Yeah, like Heck said, it's a you know, it's an individual process. It's a personal process. Everybody does it differently. We can you know gain and learn a lot of information, but I think the best way to figure out your best process is by experimenting and trying different things until you settle into a groove that feels good to you. Yeah. And never be afraid to ask other people what they think or ask for advice. Because as we've said, everybody has a different process and everybody will think about things in a different way. Like I have a friend that's an engineer. And when I'm thinking about magic systems, I throw my ideas at him. And then he gives, he tells me things that I never would have thought of, of those applications of the abilities I've, I've asked about. So um, never be afraid to consult other people because you will, they will think of things that you will not. Yeah, that is a huge resource. Yeah, so figure out what you're good at and work out what you're not, and then just go and write something you love or make something you love in this case. 
On the subject of listening to other people and seeking outside input, do you feel like that is always a good thing or do you think it can be harmful? I personally have seen people who the second something is said contrary to what they're trying to do, they cut their entire setting into pieces or just annihilate what they're trying to make instead of trying to adapt to other people's concerns. Do you think that trying to be a chameleon is incredibly harmful or do you think it's all right? And that some people just need to work through that in their process. I think that it depends on the genre, the genre that you're doing and also how, I suppose, how you have been, how you're approaching it, your sources, your inspiration. And I almost want to say how much you, how much, uh, how much tropes or how many tropes you end up using, because there is a thing as a imitation syndrome where it feels like it's hard to create something new. If someone is having or suffering from that, where they feel like whatever they're creating is not worth the time because it's just flawed, that might be more on an individual's ability to either take critique or to take critique in a constructive manner to a way to improve the work as opposed to destroy it. Because unless you have people that are criticizing you very blatantly and in a non-constructive way, usually that criticism or that feedback is with good intentions. And I would say don't change something just because somebody tells you to change it. Hopefully get feedback from several sources and, you know, kind of weigh the different opinions against, you know, your own objectives and, you know, maybe tweak something a little bit. Or sometimes, you know, if, if the advice goes against what you're trying to do, you just ignore it. You just have to, you know, make those decisions for yourself. I'd say learning to take criticism is one of the most valuable skills you could have if you're trying to create something because having people look at your stuff and tell you what works and what doesn't is very important because you know how everything's supposed to work. They're the people that are telling you if that's coming off right, but you don't necessarily have to take everything to heart. Like say, for example, you're making a world to tell like a, like a modern day gritty spy adventure in and you have like all this stuff worked out, you know, about, you know, secret gadgets and international intrigue. And you give someone, you give a friend of yours, everything you've got and you ask them what they think. And they send back like a critique saying there's not nearly enough swords. Then this person might not be looking at it as in the way you want them to. And you can probably disregard that unless everyone else you give it to says it needs more swords. I want to double up on what Hex said about it being, you know, taking criticism being important, one of the most important skills to learn. It's probably also one of the most difficult skills to learn. And the big thing is, you know, not getting upset about it when somebody does criticize your work. You you have to kind of step back and look at it objectively. I fully agree on that. I think taking criticism and furthermore, learning to give good criticism is incredibly helpful. And it it becomes difficult when trying to discuss other people's settings and world building when they can't take criticism. And how do you objectively give criticism to someone who doesn't want it? But that's a tale for another time. This uh, this has all been some great stuff, especially on the entire idea of giving and getting critique and how to let the experiences of others try to influence your world and how you should let them. So I guess this kind of blends into my next topic of an audience and learning how to world build towards one and how to understand what audience would be interested in your work. For the two of you who are published authors, 
do you guys have a process in mind for approaching the audience of um, the novels you've written? I call mine the slow drip method. <laughs> yeah, I'm a compulsive world builder. And as I said, I make the entire setting before I really work on characters or anything beyond the broadest, the broadest plot. So my general rule of thumb for introducing your audience to your world is if you're telling a story, it has to be in a um, slow drip. I call mine the slow drip method in that you only tell them details that matter in the moment. Like if you have a scene that's taking place where there's a ship on fire, you can talk about, oh, and this is how they you know, put out fires or something like that. But you really don't need to talk about, you know, how the sails are weaved or where the wood that the ship is made of comes from, because that's not really important. So that way your audience learns things about your world, but they're not sitting there like tapping their thumb against the book, wondering, okay, when are we going to get back to the story? You've been talking about the forest of Elwood for two pages now. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You just want to put little details and, you know, putting it from the character's perspective and you know, you don't have to tell the audience all of your world building. So like I've got a setting where it's a seaside town with a big thriving trade economy and, you know, fishing economy and stuff like that. I don't sit there and tell you all that, but there, you know, the character walks by the docks and there's these ships and colorful people from different, you know, parts of the world. And you know, he steals a fish from a fishmonger and stuff like this. So you see, you know, what's going on with the economy just from what the person sees. So the, you know, the world building isn't something that I'm not writing the book to tell you everything about the world I'm writing or I'm doing the world building so that when I write the book, the world has realistic details in it. Do you think that those realistic details make the world come to life a little bit more and that audiences appreciate that almost like realistic flair that you can give a setting just by adding some detail like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of the most common and better feedback I've gotten on a lot of my books is that people say that they feel like they're really in the book, that it feels like they're actually like walking through the city that I'm describing or the, you know, the town that I'm describing. Because I have, you know, things like what kind of food people eat and different parts of the city laid out and, you know, the economic levels and different construction materials and stuff like that. And, you know, like I said, you don't reveal it all at once. Like Heck said, you just do little clips of it. So, you know, you're in the poor part of town. There's wood, you know, shacks and stuff like that. But yeah, all those little details, you know, people say it feels like they're actually, you know, in that world, you know, walking through that city when they're reading the book. And, and people enjoy it a lot. They really love it. That's awesome. And helpful for someone like me who definitely world builds way too much detail. <laughs> well, it's, um, I've just realized we've been talking a lot about how to world build as an author. And we haven't talked much about other mediums that might be more visual. So one thing I wanted to suggest, if you're doing like a more visual medium, like, you know, like a graphic novel or a video game or something like that, design is very important because you can, uh, one of my favorite things to see in like a video game, like when I'm walking around is see, is seeing like uniform like design choices 
like when I walk into a certain area of a game and I see like, oh, I recognize these buildings. This is inhabited by, you know, X or Y people because I recognize this. Having like consistent visual design that makes your, that makes your, you know, watchers or your players go, oh, this is here. I recognize this. This is familiar. Can be really good and help really help immerse them in the game. So world building distinct images and aesthetics is necessary in such a situation. It makes sense, especially since that's 90% of the medium, but also it, it does have an impact, especially in games and graphic novels. So it's, it is something to keep in mind of when you go for a more visual based medium. What about a more collaborative medium though? Like RPG design. When running your games, Amakinate, what kind of world building do you look to create to immerse your players in your setting? My current campaign has been running for about two and a half years at this point. And I think at this point, I've gotten a hold of what clicks for them as far as world building and what I have been famous for is lore dumping. Just because in an RPG, you can't really afford, or rather in a tabletop game where you have multiple people sitting quietly for maybe three to four hours. You can't afford to do big lore dumps of exposition or reading off of a, uh, a card or a piece of paper. So what I end up doing is a lot of characters, of non-playable characters, that are trying to kind of introduce them to a story, introduce them to the world that they ultimately come to care for and kind of connect so that the information that is given sticks because there is that investment. So... I guess the point that I was trying to make is I build up investment first before I really hit players with a lot of world building because uh, story details and lore can naturally be heavy without that initial kind of buy-in to a setting. I totally agree with that. And I think that can, that definitely applies to writing fiction also, you know, getting people to be interested in the characters that are in a book will get them interested in the details of the world around them. And that's why you want to, you know, reveal a lot of that from the character's perspective. I think that that would work for uh, video games too, where, you know, you're, you're interested in the characters and the story that's going on in a video game. And that gets you interested in the world around them. That I, I think people are what people relate to more than anything else. If you can connect someone to a person, be it a NPC in a video game or a tabletop RPG or a character in a book, that's what's going to get them hooked into the story and care about the world that you're dealing with. And to uh, piggyback on top of that is when you're, when you're starting out with a campaign and you're starting to do the world building for a, for a tabletop game, make sure you get your players input on the world. One strategy my group has used over the last couple of years, which really works is when everybody's starting in character creation, the DM will ask them for some hooks like I like for three hooks at the three character hooks, it could be anything like, um, you know, ooh, my, my character wants to join this, you know, legendary band of, you know, holy warriors. And, you know, oh, my character has, you know, dreams of, you know, a burning mountain or anything like that. And then with the DM, you have all this, these little tidbits to work into the world. And those are automatic interest points for the players. Because you can rattle off a page and a half of lore to your players, and then five minutes later, they'll be like, wait, who are we fighting again? Whereas if it's someone that is in that already written in their backstory, they're going to be involved and into it right away. Absolutely. 
that is collaborative world building at its finest. To just kind of bring back what got mentioned earlier, though, I think it's also important to establish your box, rather, or constraints, as Hexarch put it a lot earlier, regarding world building. Because I think that helps with consistency for players as well as expectations from what you from what players can find in your tabletop campaign world. And I think it also is sort of it gives them more as well to think of a way that really fits in and mesh that meshes well together with not just your world, but as a result of being in the same box, also collaboration of narrative of character building with their party members with our with other players at the table yep and i i ran into a lack of collaboration a couple campaigns back i was planning a campaign that was going to be a lot of dungeon crawls a lot of claustrophobic tunnels and you know crawling through five foot holes and traps and everything and then one of the players came up with a fully specced cavalier character which is basically always mounted so i had to make some pretty creative dungeons to work that in but i probably could have avoided that if i had talked to him earlier but fully made out his concept just as an aside i despise mounted characters in dungeons oh so hard to deal with bless you or you just make them keep their mount outside if they're too big or play a gnome cavalier works very well that is true. Or just kill off the mount. <laughs> <laughs> but I have no soul, so. But to stay on the topic of world building and the idea that world building in an RPG specifically, and this goes to knowing your medium and knowing your genre and knowing your audience, there are like three stages there that you have to check in with just to make sure that everything will run smoothly, that your game will be copacetic. It it's, seems like it's a, a lot of front-loading too because you have to know up front and you have to have things prepared for them, especially when it comes to genre. The genre of a game, like if everyone's expecting to come into a you know high fantasy game and you want to run Call of Cthulhu, there's going to be some backlash there. And it's understanding how to approach everyone and, and get what you're looking for at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, expectations, just getting it out as soon as there's even talk of a game, as soon as you put up a group and say, how would you like to play a game? This is this is how your players would hopefully say. But a word that you said kind of stuck to me while, uh, while speaking, Dino, and that was stages. And for whatever reason, that made me think of a kind of sequential process to world building is either, I don't know what the order was, I can't remember exactly. But I think it's more of, I feel like stages is somewhat essentializing it to a sense, because you're not ever really done with dealing with genre or audience or content, because you're constantly checking for consistency that's going to hop back and kind of try to do those checkpoints, or am I still within the bounds that I set for myself? So you could perhaps call them even roadways, the roadways of world building you're always on them and you're never really going to get off them the destination is when you are done with the project and even then you might get back on the road when you want to go to a different project with it so it is the idea that it is continuous and you're always going to be checking and making sure that you're within bounds and if something has to change learning how to change it and 
get go about changing it. Do you guys have you guys ever been diverted like that? Well, apart from the cavalier thing I already mentioned, that's really the only major instance I have because I've been generally lucky for playing with the same group for about 12 years at this point. So they know we all know what we're expecting from the game. So it's pretty so it's pretty easy for me to go down that that roadway of this is what my group wants. They want, you know, X, Y, and Z, and that, and I just need to figure out how to give it to them. So I don't run into many of the, well, we thought we were doing a, you know, high fantasy sword and sorcery thing, and then you threw, you know, Cthulhu at us, or you know, some like in high intrigue politics that they weren't expecting and didn't expect their characters for, or just flat out don't want to role play wheeling and dealing. So wow, that was that was the longest way of me I can think of of saying no, I don't know what to do in that situation. <laughs> Part of me wants to think that's kind of delving more into table etiquette to an extent when you're playing a campaign like that. I am curious though that if you are put in that position where you're wanting to have one genre in the world, for example, fantasy, but then you get this itch to do something else. For example, right, right now I'm really pining for like some some sci-fi, some steampunk, something that's more high-tech than what you'd expect of normal fantasy. Is it would it be worth actually trying to segue that within the same world or should that just be something that's entirely different, entirely different project, entirely different world? What do you all think? I'd argue that if you if you have a regular tabletop game going with like with with a continuing story and weekly or bi-weekly meetings, I'd say no, unless you do a thing that my group calls a habanero whiskey dream, which is you just have a crazy <laughs> yeah, you just have a crazy session where the rules don't apply and the next session or whenever that little series is over, your characters wake up with a massive hangover and then everything goes on as normal. Or you can just do a one shot in just like a different in a different uh, setting or even a different game system while between doing your regular campaign and your regular story. Yeah, that's what I've done in the past. You know, for a while I was playing pretty long D&D campaign and, you know, kind of got, you know, a little bit of uh, burnout to it and a little bit of the murder hobo syndrome where we were just going around killing things for the fun of it. So we took a break from that and did some other stuff and came back to it. Played uh, Starfinder actually, you know, a little sci-fi break. So you could always just, you know, break off. You know, if you if you're meeting, you know, like once a month or you know once every two weeks, something like that. You know, just every once in a while, just you know, have like a little mini side campaign going on in a different system or setting where uh, you can kind of take a break from the grind because uh, you can get a little burnt out on it actually, even though it's supposed to be fun. Well, I. Totally and wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think Makane's point was more along the lines of when you take those breaks, are they within the same setting? Can you evolve your setting to adapt to that? Like, for instance, or even just blending in different genres into your setting to try to shake things up because that's what you would like or you think your players would. For instance, in my setting, all of my angels are essentially crystal robots. And there's other small sci-fi flares and my, my players have all found it incredibly interesting. But is that giving it a sci-fi bit? Is it just giving it a, a, 
a little bit of sci-fi, like a little tint, or is that going into breaching genre? Is the idea that could I take it and then now we're spacefaring and great ships, but with similar ideas from the setting, but now it's 2000 years in the future. The great thing about tabletop gaming is that unlike writing, you don't have a, a big, vast audience to please. You have four, five, six people that are at the table that you can that you can ask about that sort of thing. So it's much easier to get feedback on what your players may or may not want. So at the early stages of the campaign, that'll be much easier when everyone's still making their making their characters and working out what their options are. And if you bring up, you know, hey, does anybody want androids in this setting? And someone jumps at that, <laughs> then you can work them in. I'd say it's a bit harder once you get further along and more gets established, but that's probably the world building purist in me that will freak out when what you want to put lasers in a fantasy world, but that'll change everything. I'll have to, they'll be able to smelt metal better and nothing will make sense. But again, that's the compulsive world builder in me. If you want to throw lasers into your high fantasy and your party wants to do that, then go for it. I mean, I agree that I think for the average tabletop DM, GM, that's world building for our personal setting, their audience is going to be less than 10 on average. But let's say you are a big publisher or a bigger publisher that's actually creating an RPG setting book. Would that be something that's plausible, that's possible within the same universe? Would, would that be a good idea? And in that regard, I guess we're kind of questioning the, that line of consistency with world building when we're determining the initial genre, the initial focus, the initial scope. You can always make it fit like uh, TSR was Spelljammer back in the day. That is true. That's a very good example. Yes, that is. And it's also the work and effort that went into it is also a big part of it. And how they had set up the setting beforehand helped as well. So I guess if you can put the legwork in and you have this more loosely defined setting, perhaps it, it can. It can work to switch genres when you want to change it up. And I think that it is more of a problem for people who have a, a a printed audience, like you're printing material f- to someone. Yeah, I agree with, with Hexy. If you're like sitting around a table, you just have to make those four or five, six people happy. But like when you're printing or writing a book or something like that, and you don't want to change it. You know, you've got to worry more about mass appeal. If you're a publisher or a printer and you're trying to put out your own tabletop game system and you're wondering about different genres, modules are a brilliant idea. You can have, you know, a sword and sorcery module, uh, you know, synth pop metal cyberpunk uh, module, anything you want, so long as the rules are consistent and everything applies between, between the modules, then players can just pick and choose which ones they want to use. That actually reminds me of another system from back, I think, in the 80s, or setting called Rifts. And basically, it was there was these rifts in space time that opened up, and all these different mirror universes and everything all spilled over into each other. And you had everything from cyberpunk to high fantasy to cosmic horror all leaking into each other. So you could play in this one setting and delve into all these different genres. So, when looking at different settings, either from the lens of an RPG or novel that you want to read. And looking at the worlds that they've made, how can you 
can you separate the world building and approach it in a way to like critique it? Or is it only really approachable when you're looking at it through a lens of its medium and its genre? Can it, it can world building alone be critiqued? I am inclined to say that I personally like to judge works based on the medium they're meant for. I'm trying to think of a good example. Going for video games, a series that I think has fantastic world building is Dark Souls, the series. But a lot of that world is because of how impressed I am with the manner that they world build, which is a lot of ambience of atmosphere, little excerpts on items, and just general placement of either characters or set pieces in the game. But they're not writing a lot of books or rather a lot of text on their world building. And a lot of it is left probably to the player to dissect, analyze, and to, as many videos on YouTube would indicate, theory craft on what an item or a person is like, uh, what their importance is in the lore. So I'm, I'm hesitant to judge world building just as world building without considering the, the platform, the medium. Yeah, I think, you know, you're only seeing, you know, the, the final product, the book or the game or the movie, you know, and how the world building works within that is kind of, you know, the success or failure of it. But a lot of times you don't see all of the world building, like one of the writing concepts is the iceberg principle, where you build this entire iceberg, but you only show your audience the very tip of the iceberg, what floats above the water. Everything else is there just to hold it together. So when you're looking at a book and you're judging the world building in a book, you don't know how much the author actually put into it. There might be a whole lot more that you never even see. So essentially, from what I understood, BK and Amakinate, that you both kind of agreed that you have to look at it through the lens of its medium and through essentially its genre and that the way they approach things because otherwise things that create these compendious tomes would be the only ones that could quantify as having world building yes or did i misunderstand something no yeah that and i totally agree with what x said that it's the the immersion and the uh, consistency and you know, like I said, other than like your big, you know, campaign setting tomes or something like that for uh, for role playing game, you don't see the raw world building. So it's it's how real does the world feel, you know, when you're experiencing the medium that it was meant for. I think it's kind of hard to, I and mean, you can pick apart and criticize certain things. Like people will criticize the mountains in Mordor in the Lord of the Rings series or trilogy. The mountains are square and mountains don't do that. You, know, you can nitpick little technical details, but the story is immersive and it doesn't really throw you out of it. And you know, you've got all these little details thrown at you. you know, that, that's the real success of it, that, that when you're reading it, it feels alive. And I, I would like to say that I love that BK brought up the whole iceberg principle, because I feel like I've been smacked with that with a hammer just building for a tabletop campaign. Like, I feel like I know so much, but I can, I only have this limited time and limited scope to really tell how much of my world is this way or why it's this way without being a lore dump that is uh, not advisable during a three or four hour session. So I guess to kind of adjust my answer, finding a way to get over that iceberg dilemma of making those details pop out in your world without it being oppressive to the audience. 
I think that is that is a good way to kind of give a quality, good world building step. It could bleed in. I acknowledge it could be part of presentation. But I think if a world jives in such a way that can do that, they'll to go back to hex art point is kind of part of immersion aspect of it is that you're just able to bring it out and make it tangible to your audience and enjoyable. Yeah. And, and another point, you know, the big thing with the iceberg principle is that, you know, the audience isn't going to see all of the world building, you know, you've got all of these um, foundations laid down, you know, like X mentioned earlier, I think where the wood comes from that a ship is built with, you know, the, the audience will never know that, but the, those little details being there helps make everything make sense when you say there's a wood ship and then you ask yourself, okay, well, it's in the middle of the desert where they get the wood from. You know, you, you have answers for that. It kind of ties things together. And then if you run into an uh-oh moment in your campaign or your book or whatever you're, you're building, where you say, okay, this doesn't make sense. What's the answer? How do I explain why this makes sense? You know, you have that answer then. And to uh, piggyback on the iceberg principle, just just an anecdote of something I've done recently. Is I I knew in something I wanted to write, I wanted to be there to be like a massive cliffside carving of a certain uh, goddess in one of my settings. So I did a whole bunch of research on how on how like giant stone Buddhas like in Afghanistan and China were carved into cliff sides. And I, you know, did a whole bunch of research on that so I'd know how it was done, under what situations they can be preserved, you know, what tools they needed, et cetera. So I did a ton of work for probably a two-line scene setting paragraph in one of my stories. But now I like to think that that giant boss relief statue looks pretty impressive, and that might well stick in the reader's mind, even if it's only a couple lines in a paragraph to set a scene. Yeah, that's a really good example. I've got another example kind of like that, um, where I've got um, one where there's a, a dwarven kingdom under a mountain. And I developed this whole idea and uh, system for ventilation, these ventilation pipes for you know the smoke from the cooking fires and stuff like that to pull all that up out of the mountain. And it boiled down to half of a sentence in the entire book that mentioned a copper pipe sticking out of the wall. And that was it. And I think I spent, I don't know, a whole day trying to figure it out. It was half a sentence. The it's iceberg real. is real. <laughs> it is. I'd say world building in general, no matter what, no matter what genre, no matter what medium it's in, can be judged by two broad standards. One is, as I mentioned before, consistent. Is everything generally along the same, in the same tone, same mood? Do things like wildly change? Do certain things, you know, not make sense that the game or the work insists does make sense? The other thing I mentioned is immersion. Um, and this can be, again, in a, in a tabletop game, in a video game, in a book, in a graphic novel, whatever. If the audience, your readers, your players, you know, keeps going in that world and nothing jars them out of it, they believe it's real, then you've done a great job. If you suddenly like have them run into something where they have to think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Like this was a, this was a space shooter. Why am I playing a farm simulator now? Or, you know, or anything like that. Something that suddenly sticks out and doesn't make sense with the rest of it. 
like um like any like the tone of the fallout games wouldn't mix well with say the legend of zelda games that would seem weirdly out of place if elements bled over so consistency is something i feel you can judge any world building on as well as immersion that's an interesting point on on immersion um i would come back to it with just one idea though is that you mentioned that it doesn't mesh the that ideas don't mesh such as like going into like a cooking game from a shooting game is it more the idea though that it doesn't blend that that the segue feels abrupt that you're forced into it and there's there's nothing that essentially brings you from this main aesthetic into a new aesthetic do you think you can blend them and it will continue to create immersion or is it always ruinous i think you can blend certain aesthetics if you do it well like uh, let me try to think of a good example actually a, a good one that comes up is that i thought of is fairly recent the marvel cinematic universe i one of the reasons at least i think why the movies have been as popular as they have even latched on to all the same all the same um in the same universe is that each movie was a superhero movie paired with another movie like Captain America Winter Soldier. It was a superhero movie, but it was also a spy thriller. And those are two, you know, fairly different genres and aesthetics that they made work very well together. Thor was a superhero movie combined with, you know, a coming of age, you know, coming of age superhero story. So if you're going to mix genres, you can do it quite well if you make sure the genres mix well with each other, because a spy thriller with Thor wouldn't have made any sense. Just to point out, I totally agree with your point, but I know the proper term for this. It's Buildings Roman, uh, the, the coming of age story. <laughs> more of a, a literary device. Um, I'm just, just kidding. But um, no, I totally agree with that. And that, that is why they are popular. They, they do mesh two genres together. And it's like every movie does that. And it's why they're so interesting to me, at least. And this segues us perfectly into another topic of what is quality world building and can it even be defined because to me i do really think that the world building in the mcu is quality how about you guys um so to clarify the 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 question was like what is quality world building mm -hmm. and can it even be defined i want to say that i have my ideas for quality world building so by technicalities yes it can i think of it as using Hex, Hex's term, consistent and immersive. Details that are thought out that make sense within the world, but also, what's the best way to put it? Not defined enough, but they've been elaborated enough that I can personally see this world happening or experience it in however way it's meant to be experienced. For example, the I've been playing Outer Worlds recently, and one of the big kind of parts of their world building, I think, is corporations are everywhere and they control everything. And there is a point in the game where you have to go to a pretty much a ship settlement. And the first thing I see after passing through a docking bay was just corporate advertisements and lights in my face. And I my jaw just dropped because I thought that was fantastic of a fantastic way of showing 
this this world that they were at least trying to establish. So for a newer piece of media, it has so far what you played, or did you finish the game? I'm sorry. I am about, <laughs> I am not even halfway through. I will tell you that okay. much. But so far it's because it, it has some exemplary uh, world building. What about the world building in through through that example makes you feel that it is quality? Is it the fact that like it feels kind of alive? Is it something else? Yes. Because I'm playing a character, I get to control it. It felt in my face, which I think is very appropriate for my own preconceived notions of corporate advertising advertisements and its kind of pervasiveness in common society. That's just, it, it felt appropriate. It matched my expectations of what I've been told before. And another thing that showed up what is that even the characters kind of go, they consistently go by this example. There are characters I'm trying to, in RPG fashion, talk to because I might learn something or maybe get a reward or a quest. But they keep stonewalling me because bureaucracy prevents them from saying anything beyond one or two lines. Every question I ask is given the exact same response. And I spend two minutes talking to one NPC, trying to get something, and I came out with nothing but bureaucracy. It was frustrating, but it was that frustrating that, was, that I came to expect in hindsight. So it was immersive. It felt right. So, the, so actually, dialing back to what Hex said, that consistency and immersion will create a quality setting. And this is kind of shown true through here. How about uh, you, Hex? What do you have to say? One of the challenges, well, one thing good quality world building will do will stick with your player, your audience, your reader. They'll remember like a, a certain detail about a place and it will stick with them even as they read through and you know, move on to other things. But the challenge with that is you don't know what will stick with a certain person that is enjoying your work. For example, I sat on a panel once at a convention and we that on a panel about world building, shocker. And me and another person on the panel discussed an author called David Weber, who writes a military science fiction series called The Honorverse. And he is famous for his info dumps in both Technobabble explaining how his giant space dreadnoughts work and in talking about details of the history and the culture of the planets he came up with. And we had a nice back and forth about which part of that was completely unnecessary and which part about that was really good. Because I, me, I've learned as I read those books to just glaze over when I get the techno babble until I actually hit dialogue. Whereas I will dive into his world building expository. Like one book, the only thing I re really remember that stuck with me in a book with massive space battles where hundreds of thousands of people died was in the future, noble property can, can include parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. And that was such a neat <laughs> detail to me, it stuck with me. And that stuck with me because I'm a world building fanatic and I love stuff like that. Whereas someone more engineering would have liked the whole, and this is how they shoot 50,000 missiles at once. Let me explain this for two pages. So do you think quality world building isn't necessarily from the world builder, but from the audience perceiving it? Well, to quote Percy from the magazine, yes and no. 
once you once you get to that point of consistent, I think getting to that point of consistency and immersion, that is when you will be able to start planting those seeds in your reader's mind. But you need to do that. You need to get those two things right to do that. I called out Harry Potter's world building for being inconsistent earlier on, but everybody knows Hogwarts. They know the they know the fat lady that you get into the Gryffindor common room. They know the astronomy tower. They know the room of requirement. That's both consistent in that, you know, you always need to go through the fat lady. You always need to think what you want going into the room of requirement. And it's also very immersive because, you know, that's a neat detail that you can grab a hold of because we've all seen paintings on walls. So to sum up from that kind of ramble, quality world building, what is quality world building will be up to the audience. but to get that to them, you still do need that consistency and that ability to immerse them in what you've created. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the big measure of quality, you know, like, like we said before, is in the, the final product. And, you know, whether you're talking about video games or books or movies, you know, the, the big thing to remember is that all of these things are entertainment. That, you know, it, is the result entertaining is a, a big factor with it. So an entertainment value to it is key. So do you think it is, from what I understand of the general opinion, is that it is in the eye of the beholder. But is there still some quality check necessary on the end of the world builder? Like on on your end as creators, can you do things to make sure that the quality is there? Or is it simply you'll do your best and the readers will like it or they won't? I think that world builders do have, whether they realize it or not, kind of a checklist. Um, as you mentioned before, those roadways of have I stayed on this, does it make sense in my world? And I think the drawback from that is that we world builders will know, will, won't see the rest of the iceberg. And we can't always see what the audience sees because we might just subconsciously attach context to a part of world building. And just as a, I guess, addendum to that is that quality world building doesn't always apply to everything in the world. You could have some fantastic portions like Hogwarts and Harry Potter, for the example. And then you can just have not great world building, like I would argue some of the more recent canon material that's come from the Fantastic Beast movies that kind of doesn't make sense, some would argue. Well, I'll leave that discussion perhaps for a different time of uh, <laughs> what I think of that. But yes, it's it's a lot of personal checks for the world building world builder himself, herself, their self to realize, is this up to par of what I have been producing or of the quality I wish? So basically, I, I definitely totally agree. I think in the end, we as creators have to be the foremost, the first and last line of checking our own quality of our own work and making sure that in the end that it's true to what we are trying to create. And so long as we keep that vision, it should be a quality product. But does popularity mean quality or can unknown things have great 
world building in them, which I, I personally think so. And so I think that popularity does not equate to quality. I mean, also kind of look at Harry Potter, as we've mentioned 20 times in this episode. It does not have the most consistent or best world building, and it is one of the most successful settings ever created. And in the end, it's still quality product. It's still quality world building. It's such an interesting example on the other end of the spectrum of everything else we want to say. J.K. Rowling really did struck golden lightning with it. <laughs> yeah, I think you know the you know the thing is that the world building is not the only thing that goes into it. You know, when you're looking at uh, you know any of these products, books, or movies that you know or video games, you know, you've got the playability of the video game, the mechanics, and with movies, you've got you know sound and direction the acting you know with books you've got the plot and the characters there's so many different things that go into it that you know the world building is very important of course you know uh, we wouldn't be here talking about it if it wasn't but if you're trying to judge like the quality of a final product the world building is really just one part of that it, it might lay the groundwork but it's it's not going to be the last thing that goes into it to make a quality product yeah, it's definitely part of the bigger umbrella of entertainment value, which can include world building, but isn't necessarily hinging on it, as, as I think uh, our Harry Potter example has very much shown. And I would argue even with um, some of the kind of bigger Marvel movies, like uh, I would like to argue that at the start of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I looked at it and like, in, like as a rewatch, like, I don't care much for the world building, but I still like it. I, I still like the first Iron Man because it pretty much established he's selling weapons to, to terrorists. And he made money and then he had a redemption arc. And now there's this guy, it's all corporate. I think the world building there was pretty slim and a lot of it hinged on perhaps context and knowledge of fans, perhaps maybe of comics. If even that at the time, I don't think Iron Man was really one of the biggest... Marvel titles, but nonetheless, it was an entertaining. Iron Man One was a very entertaining movie. I think quality and appeal aren't necessarily the same thing, because to once again loop back to Harry Potter, she the world building J.K. Rowling did is not necessarily consistent, but it is very immersive because she gives all these person these places that Harry goes to so much personality, and you can you can feel like you know what, you know, what the borough would be like, what Gryffindor Common House would be like, what the Great Hall at Hogwarts would be like, because she does very good presenting her world to her audience. And presentation, I feel like, is a good indicator of appeal. I, I think that presentation does have a huge part to play in how you present your world building, or at least even in the final product that the world building is in as BK mentioned, that world building is just a piece of the quality of the final product. And so is how you display it. So is the plot. So is dialogue and how characters interact. So, so much of it is derived together to create the final product that world building has to be seen through a lens, essentially, of what you're trying to do with it. Would you all agree? I would say so, yes. That isn't to say that a creator, a creator, a world builder shouldn't be prepared for perhaps their audience, if, if not some, then maybe many of their audiences see the world in a way that 
is different from their own personal vision because elaborate works will invoke kind of certain ideas, certain feelings, convey ideas that will be different from one consumer to the other. And it's important for a creator to realize that how someone else perceives it doesn't necessarily have to change how they personally perceive their work. Yeah, everybody's going to look at things in a different way. And, you know, certain aspects are going to reach out to some people more than others. Everybody's going to have their their own kind of opinions and views, and they're going to latch on to different aspects of what you've presented to them and enjoy certain parts of it more than others. So kind of, I suppose, wrap things up. Do any of you have like final thoughts or comments on essentially from your perspective, what world building is, how it's, you can define its quantity, uh, its quality and its approach. Like to you, what does it in a final thought mean to approach world building and how to create it with quality? To me, the world building, you know, as an author, it's, it's really kind of filling a toolbox with, you know, different things that you're going to use when you get into writing about that the, you know, we talked about consistency and immersion and things like that. The consistency comes up in the world building, the immersion comes up in the writing where, you know, to me, world building is is setting up, like I said, a, a toolbox. It, it gives you things to work with when you're writing the book. I think the real quality comes in when you're putting all that into the final product. I think the most solid piece of advice I can give here is know what you want to do before you start, because it goes back to what I was saying about boundaries can boundaries and framework can help you be more creative than just a complete open, open fields. So if you know, you want to build a cyberpunk world, then research cyberpunk research, what influenced cyberpunk. If you want to, build a high fantasy world, well, do your research there, know what you're going towards, and that'll help you get there. From my experiences, I think of world building as, in a sense, telling a story that I think will be important while accepting, not exactly will be important, that will be told, perhaps in the narrative and story, but also accepting that it may not get told, but is nonetheless important to the consistency, believability, and immersiveness of my world. Be true to yourself, be true to your audience, be true to what you're making, and you'll make the best thing you can. I really think that world building is the key part to a lot of different mediums, books, video games, television, movies, the list goes on it's consumable media, world building has a hand in it. Using the word setting, world building has a hand in it. And at the end of the day, you have to continue to learn and approach your setting with an outlook that it isn't the best it can be until you're done. And you're not done until you're finished making whatever product you're making. And if you're world building just for fun, then it's as best as you want it to be. And don't be afraid of changing it. Don't be afraid of making these grand sweeping changes. Fear for the quality will only hurt the quality. So to move into our challenge for the week, world builders, think how a world you know would change if it were transferred into a different medium, such as 
how would the Star Wars movies change if it was turned into a video game, which I guess it kind of has been, <laughs> or Harry Potter was turned into live stage production. Damn it, once again, already happened. But you get the point. You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media. Or feel free to come chat with us on the World Building Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep world building. <laughs> <laughs>